Red salmon is such a big topic, we can't fit it into one episode. So this week, we spend just a little more time on the FV Captain Cook with skipper Malcolm Milne. We'll also go to the headwaters of Starisky Creek with Cooey Walker, Steve Baird, and Jacob Argueta from the Kachemak Bay National Estuary and Research Reserve to consider the ways in which salmon depend on the land for survival. From KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Looking at a cookbook that I'm quite certain a large percentage of the people listening right now have on their bookshelves, Cooking Alaskan by Alaskans. First published in 1983, it contains recipes for pretty much everything edible that swims, walks, flies, or grows here, called from the pages of Alaska Magazine, Alaska Sportsman Magazine, and the spiral-bound community cookbooks that were common everywhere in mid to late 20th century America. It's a good first stop when someone drops off a beaver hindquarter or a pile of fiddleheads or you're trying to figure out what to do with the spruce end you just shot. Of its 500 pages, 25, 5% of the whole book are devoted to salmon. The only thing that gets more pages is venison, but they lump deer, caribou, and moose together. So in my view, salmon still gets pride of place. The recipes are mostly very good. There are, of course, the kind involving cream of mushroom soup and frozen peas that every mid-20th century community cookbook is going to have too many of. But there are plenty of good ones. Potted salmon, essentially exactly the same as the riettes from the first part of this episode, a very good-looking gravlax recipe, and an incredible whole boned-out red salmon stuffed with crab and spinach. Although the sauce that accompanies it is dismal a barely seasoned bechamel with a tiny splash of lemon juice and yellow food coloring. Substitute a hollandaise of some variety, though, and you are smiling. There's a whole section on cooking milt, the male salmon's counterpart to roe, that includes a recipe for deep-fried milt and french fries that really should knock the ubiquitous fish and chips off of menus all over Alaska. There's a recipe for stinkhead and several for liver. For all the awful on offer at trendy nose-to-tail eateries in the lower 48, you never see fish liver on menus, although Ann Matthews of Sitka, whose recipe for fried salmon livers appears here, says that children, especially, should be encouraged to eat salmon liver. There are recipes intended to feed crews on fishing boats at the end of an 18-hour day. There are recipes developed by Alaska natives to carry them through the winter. There are recipes who impress the people attending your summer parties. There are recipes to cover up the slightly musty taste of the package forgotten in the back of the freezer. There are recipes where salmon is the star, and there are recipes where it fades into the background. It's distinct flavor, one among many. The cover of Cooking Alaskan shows the flashiest, best-known, and most expensive Alaskan export, king crab legs. But crab only gets 15 pages, and a full three and a half of them or just variations on crab salad. Crab gets the attention, salmon puts in the work. 
These are our noisettes, aka medallions. And again, this is basically an improved salmon steak. You get a piece of the loin, you get a piece of the belly, but you don't get any bones and you don't get any skin. And so the way to actually make a noisette out of a steak is first you just lay the steak on its end. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll cut the very, very tip of the belly off, lay the knife flat, kind of like skinning a fish where, you know, you cut the little end of, of the tail off and then it's easy to lay the knife flat and run it along underneath the meat and on top of the skin. You do the same thing with the steak. You turn it on end, cut the very, very little tip of the belly off, just a little sliver, and then you lay the knife flat, roll it along, flip the steak over, and the skin comes off in one piece. And then you very carefully cut along the backbone and down the ribs on each side, and you get two sort of tadpole-shaped pieces of salmon, you know, a loin at one end and a belly at the other, and then you'll flip them over and mate them together. And that's how you make the actual shape of the noisette. And then, of course, you got a pin bone. So what I'm doing now is extracting the pin bones, which anyone who has ever dealt with salmon knows is a, an extremely tedious task. Some people use needle nose pliers. I used to use needle nose pliers. I am now firmly in tweezer camp. You don't have to buy the super fancy Japanese fish tweezers. Well, you certainly can. I'm sure they're very nice. I am just using tweezers from the cosmetics aisle. Uh, the important thing with your tweezers is that you want to make sure you get the kind with a very sharp, very flat ends. You don't want to buy the super, super cheap ones that are kind of rounded because you definitely need uh, the sharp end to be able to grab onto the, the pin bone. Pin boning the, the noisettes like this is a little different too because you do it from the side. I like tweezers because they snap back, which needle nose pliers do not. When you release the tension on them, they just open right back up. Needle nose pliers also tend to be a little blunter and it's a lot easier to damage the fish and make it look not very nice. If you're going to go to all this trouble, which really it's not that difficult. It is, it is labor intensive doing these noisettes, these medallions, but it's not tremendously difficult. You know, once you've done it, done them a couple times, you get pretty, pretty good at it. And it's the kind of thing that I think it really makes a big difference and uh, people really appreciate it. And they see the little, the little medallion, the little noisette. And I don't know why they're called noisettes. Incidentally, uh, noisette in French is, means hazelnut. The only thing that I can really think of is that they, got, they acquired that name because, you know, in a hazelnut, it's got the two distinct halves of the nut that, you know, come apart very easily. And I suppose that perhaps whoever named them was reminded of the two distinct halves of the hazelnut by the sight of the two distinct halves of the salmon noisette. But that's what I'm guessing. I don't know that for sure. So now I've got, I've got them both pin boned. They're nice because they're, they're a very even thickness the whole way through. They're about an inch, which is really about, you don't want to go much less than an inch for these. It's just not worth it if they're too small. So now I have two bamboo skewers and these typically quite a bit better if you use two of them per noisette. To help you visualize this, you basically mate the two fat pieces, the two loin pieces together, and you wrap the belly around the outside of the other piece. Basically, it looks a little bit like a little yin-yang symbol. And uh, you want to spend a little bit of time, you know, arranging them just to get them, you know, kind of as neat and as sort of compact and oval, or they're not going to be like totally circular. They're going to be kind of oval shaped. So then I thread two. You can actually usually fit three on the bamboo skewers. It kind of depends on how long they are. Once I have 
the pointy end through. The first one, I run it all the way to the end of the skewers, all the way to the dull side, and then I just cut the skewers, and then I get my nice noisette. And then I now have, still have the pointy end. This way then I, I, I get multiple skewers out of one piece of bamboo. So now I have two lovely oval shaped, very compact, very neat looking noisettes. And I don't even really need to cook these um, <laughs> to demonstrate the cooking process for these because it literally is just saute them in a pan um, until they're cooked through, until they're 134 degrees is typically what I like to cook my salmon to. It's, it's, so it's a nice, a nice medium rare to pushing towards medium, but you can certainly go further uh, if you'd like because salmon is so fatty, it's very amenable to being cooked a little longer than something like halibut, which will start to dry out relatively quickly. So the last thing I'm gonna do before I worry about cooking these is I'm gonna salt them on the outside, both sides. And I'm gonna let them sit in the fridge uncovered for not a whole lot of time, maybe an hour or so. And what that'll do is that'll form a little bit of a pellicle on the outside. And that pellicle will help the fish brown a little bit better. These, I'm gonna cook them on both sides. I'm gonna sear on one side, flip over, sear on the other, and then, you know, just cook till it's done. Okay, I got my garnish just about ready. And this is just a really simple salad, basically, of uh, stuff from the garden. So this is some radishes. These are white radishes. I forget which variety. I have to go look at the seed packet. Uh, there's some kind of white radish. Garlic scapes, quite a few of them. My garlic's just about ready to start coming in and the scapes are at the perfect stage. The buds are not large. They've curled over. They look like a little pigtail. So I've got a bunch of those in there. I have a little bit of chervil, which we talked about during the riettes part of the show. And I also have a little bit of a shiso, AKA perilla, which is a leaf. It's, a, it's an herb. It's kind of, it's a little difficult to describe. It's, it's in the mint family and it has kind of a, it, it doesn't really taste minty, but it has like kind of the pungency of, of mint. It's got a real funk to it and it goes really, really nicely with fish. So I've got a bit of shiso in there as well. So shiso, uh, white radishes, garlic scapes, and chervil, and then just a little bit of salt. And all I'm going to do is mix that all together with the sauce that I'm gonna make. And the sauce will be both for the little salad and we can also drizzle it around the plate because it's quite delicious. And this sauce is a miso rhubarb vinaigrette. And it is yummy. It's also extremely easy to make, assuming that you have some rhubarb jam, which I do. I made a bunch of rhubarb jam. I made two different varieties. This one is the basic variety. And I also made one that had Sichuan peppercorns and dried chilies, which is dynamite. It is really, really good. Um, and it would be quite delicious in this, but the people that I'm cooking for are not people who enjoy spicy food. I put about a tablespoon of miso and about a tablespoon of rhubarb jam in the bottom of my mortar and pestle. And I'm just gonna give them a little stir, kind of get them together a little. And this rhubarb jam is really, it's really, really easy. I make it pretty much every year now. It is equal parts rhubarb and sugar. And then I dump in some allspice, some cloves, uh, a little cinnamon, a little star anise. And that's pretty much it, I think. Uh, some nutmeg and cook it until it's jam. And it, it's really delicious. And uh, it's, it's one of my favorite ways of using rhubarb. Anyway, I got the miso and the rhubarb in the, the rhubarb jam in the bottom of my mortar and pestle. And I've got some rice vinegar. Just gonna add that 
to it all. And I like to get the miso fairly smooth. It's kind of the, the most difficult bit because miso, you know, it, it has the consistency basically of peanut butter. You want it to be kind of smooth before you start adding the oil. And all miso is is basically fermented soybean paste. There's a bunch of different kinds. This is uh, re this is just plain old white miso. There's red miso and there's a couple other other varieties. This is just the real basic white stuff. So I just added a little bit of vinegar to there and I imagine I'm gonna have to add some more at the end. Um, I don't need to add salt because miso is crazy salty. So I'm gonna drizzle just a little just a little bit of oil in at a time. This is just making a standard vinaigrette except it's really easy because miso is also a good emulsifier. And this comes together very quickly. I'm thick now. Give it a little taste. I think it needs just a bit more miso. The rhubarb, the sweetness from the rhubarb jam is coming through a little more than I want it to. So I'm gonna add a little bit more miso. Then I'm gonna add some vinegar at the end. Let's keep going, break down the chunky bits of miso. Good, add a little squirt more of oil. Thin it just a bit more with some vinegar. Now, let's try this. Give that a little taste. Mmm, ooh, that's nice. That's nice. I think it needs a little touch of heat. And in this case, where do I want to get my heat from? I think I'll just give it a little dash of Tabasco. And the heat isn't really to make it hot. The heat is more to sort of you know, awaken the flavors going on here. Mm, ooh, yeah. Ooh, that's good. Okay, what else does it need? I think it can use a little bit of pepper. And I think it can use another shot of vinegar. Mmm. Oh, yeah. There we go. Perfect. Love it. Rhubarb miso vinaigrette. Very simple. Shiso, uh, white radishes, garlic scapes and Shervil. The seine, which in its most basic form is a net that takes fish by encircling them, not by entangling them in the web itself or by towing a net and trapping them inside it, is a very old method for catching fish. Seines with cedar floats and stones for weights were used to catch schools of salmon by Alaska natives for thousands of years. Various types of seine, whether deployed at sea or from land, have been used by humans for nearly as long as we've been catching fish. The most common modern seine is the purse seine. No one knows for certain when it was invented, although the first recorded appearance of it seems to be in Rhode Island in 1826 in the Menhaden fishery. A basic seine is made of floating cork line and a sinking lead line, with the web suspended between them. The earliest seines were developed to use from the beach and relied on the bottom to keep the fish trapped. This later developed into the Lampara-style net, which has a deep middle section and two long, tapering, triangular-shaped wings, so that as each of the two ends of the net are drawn together, the bottom is mostly closed off by the lead line. A purse seine adds another line, the purse line, which runs through rings sewn into the bottom of the net. It's hauled aboard separately, and as it shortens, the bottom of the seine is drawn tight, leaving fish with no possibility of escape. Rings! 
It's easy to look at a modern saner and think that while the work is certainly long and grinding and unending, it doesn't really require that much in the way of sheer grunting strength. The net comes aboard easily with a minimum of fuss. There's a person to stack a lead line into a neat pile on one side of the boat, and a person to stack the cork line into a neat pile on the other side of the boat. On a larger boat than the Captain Cook, one that uses a larger seine, there will be a person to stack the web in a neat pile in the center of the boat. There's a person running the skiff, and there's another person who runs the hydraulics, oversees the whole operation, and guides the purse line as it's hauled in by a winch on the deck. This group of four to six people can handle a massive net and the potentially thousands of pounds of fish within it without very much difficulty at all, assuming everything is going right, which it usually isn't. Until 1955, though, the number of people required to handle a seine would have been at least twice as many because all the gear and all the fish had to be hauled by hand. And everything took longer, much longer. A modern seine can be set and hauled back in a bit more than a half hour if you aren't holding the set open for any length of time. Hauling by hand took well over an hour just for the haul, sometimes much longer than that. And hauling a net by grabbing the web means you're likely to rip it constantly requiring lots of mending. Time spent mending web is time not spent fishing. The salmon fishery in any particular area is measured in weeks and anything that brings more salmon aboard during those weeks is rapidly adopted. Enter Mario Peretic. Imagine working on a saner in 1956. You've been at it for a few years, you work for a good skipper, the crew mostly gets along even though there's nine of you crowded onto a pretty small boat. You're not getting rich or anything, but you're making decent money. Your shoulders always hurt, and during the season your hands are a mess of peeling skin and cramps because you spend the majority of the fishing day hauling the net over the side of the boat. And when you get to stop doing that, you have to braille the fish out of the purse. A tedious job, even with the assistance of a deck winch. You might get a handful of sets in a day. So one fine day in 1956, you and everybody else in the little bay you're working are grunting and cursing and heaving and yelling, and you glance across the water and you see something you've never seen before. There's a boat there with a long boom stretching skyward, and at the end of that boom is a gigantic block. For any land-based listeners, a block is basically a pulley. The seine is going through that block, and there's three people on the back deck standing there, lazily throwing the lead line, web, and corks down into neat piles. And when it's all pursed up, the whole bag of fish is lifted up and dumped directly into the hold. In around 30 minutes, they're ready to set again, while you're still grunting and heaving away. They make set after set, deliver a massive load to the tender, and by the end of the day, everyone else on every other boat is thinking the same thing. I've got to have one. In 1957, when you all show back up to the same little bay, every single boat in the fleet is outfitted with a Peretic power block. Mario Peretic came from Croatia to Southern California in 1938 and began working in the sardine and tuna fleet, hauling seine by hand. He did it this way for 15 years, but in 1953, he built a device that would revolutionize commercial fishing everywhere fish are caught. The design is quite simple. The Peretic power block is basically a pulley with a rubber surface inside an aluminum sheave. The pulley is a deep V shape, which gives it plenty of surface area to grab the lead line and web, 
and is also crossed by ridges that grab onto the corks. In Peredic's original prototype design, the block was driven by ropes powered by a separate gasoline engine. He showed this design to a few people, but no one was interested, until the Seattle-based marine engineering company Marco saw it and immediately recognized it as the future of purse seining. With Marco's engineers and production capability, Peredic very quickly refined the design, changing it from rope to hydraulic power. In 1955, the first production Peredic power blocks made their way into some of the Pacific fisheries, including an Alaska saner, the bull moose. By 1956, there was a waiting list to buy the new blocks. By 1960, if you didn't have one, your days as a salmon saner were numbered. By the end of the 60s, they were everywhere fisher caught by purse saning. 60% of the tuna caught across the world today are caught by purse saners using this device. From 1969 to 1979, Canada put a saner hauling through a Peredic power block on the backside of its $5 bill. It's even used by NASA in at-sea recovery of spacecraft. Go down to the harbor in any Alaskan fishing town, and you'll see it dangling off the ends of booms up and down the docks. It is still produced, of course, in a number of different configurations for different fisheries. A world without a Peredic power block is a very different place. Scratch out another one? No, that's it. That's it? Camping out. We Head to the tender? Head to the tender. Yeah, we'd barely get one in there. Call that the sucker set. Because <laughs> if you stay and then you get behind everyone else delivering, it could be multiple hours. How would you characterize the day? Um, starting off slow and finishing satisfactory. Beautiful weather, great company having these, these uh, what do we even call you, a podcast, podcast hosts? I'm a radio producer. A radio, sorry, radio producers on board. Just makes it look all much more fun. Especially when he boarded... <laughs> I didn't even forgot to tell the crew he was coming, and all of a sudden he gets on the <laughs> boat. And they're like, "Who is this guy?" I said, "I, I, I don't know who he yeah, is." I wish I would have known. I would have been like, "Yeah, I'm, the, I'm from the government." <laughs> like, let me see just... your let me see your fishing license yeah. right now. <laughs> like, who is this guy? <laughs> I, I said, "I don't even know. Why'd you let him on board?" <laughs> Those of you who don't like whimsy and don't like playing with your food and think that a slight fussiness and a complicated preparation is not worth the trouble, probably a good idea to just go ahead and turn this off right now because we're going to get a little bit fussy. Not insanely fussy. You can get way fussier than this, but we're going to make one of those dishes that takes a bunch of different preparations and a bunch of prep and turn it into a final dish that you'll consume within five minutes. That's how cooking goes, you know?
That's just how it goes. I, I have made a variation on this dish in a restaurant situation a long time ago. I thought it was okay the first time I did it, but I, I immediately, as it goes, you, you always come up with things that you wish you had done differently. This is sort of a take two, especially since in this show, we have talked extensively about saning because this is a dish that I call salmon in a sane. And it is basically a rose because I was thinking about how to make it look like a sane haul on a plate. And this is what I came up with. So the first problem obviously is the net. You got to figure out how to represent the net. And the solution that I came up with is uh, a slightly fussy potato preparation. Salmon and potatoes, of course, very delicious together. Um, in fact, a lot of saute salmon recipes will include potato chips in the, uh, in the crust. But this uses a preparation called bird's nest potatoes. So I've got some fat in a wok. And essentially what bird's nest potatoes are, are shoestring potatoes, except when you cook them, you cook them all smushed up together so that at the end of it, they look like a little bird's nest or for this dish, a seine. There are actually specialized spatulas for doing this. Uh, I have seen them, not spatulas really, but spiders basically, sort of wire spoons that you use for deep frying. Uh, they have a hinge put the potatoes inside it and you smoosh it together and then you stick that whole thing in the deep fryer. Well, I don't have one of those. So the other way that you do it, if you, if you don't have that kind of thing is you use a ladle or two ladles, or in my case, what is better, I think, than two ladles is a strainer and a ladle. In fact, I wish I had two strainers. I would use two strainers, but I don't. And that's just, again, <laughs> kind of how she goes. So I have cut up potatoes on my mandolin to make shoestrings. Um, you want these to be very skinny so that they look, you know, they have that sort of nest slash net feel, but you don't want to grate them because then you don't, you, they'll wind up getting more of like a hash brown texture. There won't be that kind of net look, you know, the, the separation between the potatoes won't be as great. So I basically treated them exactly as I would treat them for French fries. Rinsed them several times in water. I've soaked them in salted water. I added a little bit of vinegar into the water that helps the potatoes stay together a little bit more and keep them from being so mushy. I'm going to add a little bit of in this case, I've got some arrowroot. You can also use cornstarch or even potato starch, any, any starch. You might go, oh, well, why do, you, why do you do this? You had all that potato starch that you rinsed off. Well, this, is, this starch isn't fully hydrated the way that potato starch is, so it's gonna brown a lot better, but adding a little bit to the outside will also help them stick together a little bit and not be so separate. So I soaked them in salted vinegar water for a couple of hours, and now I've, I've squeezed them out, drained them very well, so now they're very dry. And I've added a little bit of starch, in this case, arrowroot. I'm putting them, I have a little, a small strainer, like a little cup strainer kind of size. I have a ladle that almost exactly nests inside of the strainer. Now you can do this with two ladles. I think it's better to do it with a strainer because then it gives the oil better flow. Um, if you just do ladles, then it's easy to get oil trapped in the ladle and it just kind of sits at the same temperature, but it does work. I think the results are not quite as good. And now I'm sort of loosely laying my potatoes inside of this strainer. You don't want a ton of potatoes in here, really. The, the goal is to have plenty of space between the shoestrings so that it looks at the end like a net. If you really wanted to go nuts, you probably could sit here and, you know, lay all, a bunch of them one way and then a bunch of them the other way and make a full-on woven net. That would certainly be cool. And if you were going for Michelin stars, 
probably that would be advisable because that would look sweet, but that is somebody else's show. Now, the other thing that I'm gonna do is I'm putting my ladle inside my wok to heat up a little and get oily so it doesn't stick and so that when I'm when I drop it onto the potatoes in the strainer it's got some heat so they start cooking and start crisping up right away. But this is a good time to talk about the next major component of this dish. So the the, the idea is that you know the dish kind of evokes what a bag of salmon looks like coming in so you obviously sort of want to really play up the kind of oceanic sea flavors. The simplest way to do that is with the Japanese broth dashi, which is really simple to make and taste, I, I think, tastes better, especially in a situation like this than something like a fish stock, which can be really intensely fishy. Dashi just has a very light sort of oceanic flavor. There's, there's a fishiness to it, at least this particular kind. Uh, there's a number of different kinds of dashi. Kind of the most common is made with kombu kelp, dried kelp and shaved aged, dried bonito flakes. Bonito is a kind of tuna. And they, they dry, they salt and dry the, the bonito. So it's very, very hard. And then they shave it very, very thinly. Basically what you do is you bring the kombu, the kelp, almost to a boil. You strain that out. And then you add the bonito flakes to that liquid. Bring that to a boil very, very briefly. And then let them sim sit in the water for a little while. Strain them out and you're good to go. And the end result then, ooh, there we go. More about dashi in a minute. First, let's fry. So all I'm doing, I've got my ladle inside the strainer. I'm just holding it down in the fat. And the fat is bubbling through the potatoes, bubbling through the strainer. And it's all very nice. And I'm just gonna keep pressure on it pretty gently because I want these, as they cook, they need to stick together. You know, I don't want them to come apart. And I'm just gonna cook them until they get nice and brown. Which should not take too long because they are extremely small and extremely thin. Ooh, there we go. Yeah, they look very nice. So at a certain point, once they've, once they've kind of set up, then you can remove the ladle. And then I just, I'm just sort of working the strainer around a little bit just to let them finish cooking. Nice and crispy, nice and brown, nice and kind of woven together. Now I've put them onto a sheet of paper towels to drain. A couple of taps, they pop out of the strainer and I've got a lovely little net looking bird's nest. And it's gonna look awesome on a plate with some salmon and some sea foam spilling out of it. So I'm gonna set that aside for now, and now we will carry on with the dashi, uh, which I made earlier, again, as I said. It is going to form the basis of the next thing. So what I'm looking for now is I need some kind of a sauce to go with this dish. I've already decided I'm not really looking for this to be a hot dish. You know, I don't want it to be like, like a main kind of a dish. This is sort of a starter. So this is gonna be considered basically a cold dish, even though the salmon itself is gonna be warm. And a lot of times <laughs> we don't really have a good way of delineating that cold doesn't actually necessarily mean like refrigerated or chilled. It might mean room temperature, which is in this case, what we're, what we're after. A warm dish, you know, it's not hot. It's not supposed to be piping hot like a main. It's just supposed to be a little bit warm. I don't need, necessarily a hot sauce. 
which is great because there is a classic sauce, which is fantastic on fish, but it doesn't really work if it's hot. Although there are some warm versions of this as well. Um, this is not gonna be one of those. And that is mayonnaise. Specifically, in this case, a sorrel dashi mayonnaise. Traditional mayonnaise is egg yolk, lemon juice, oil, garlic. The lemon juice contributes the acidity that you need to sort of wake up flavors, um, especially in something as oily as this. The mustard helps the emulsification of the lemon juice and the oil, and also adds a little bit of sort of pungent flavor as well. And the egg provides that sort of eggy richness, and it also contains quite a few emulsifiers as well. But we're not gonna use lemon juice because even though it would be delicious, and actually the first time I made this, which is one of the things I wasn't super happy about, is I made it with uh, grapefruit juice. It was supposed to be a grapefruit hollandaise. Uh, I didn't like it that much, honestly. <laughs> it was okay. It wasn't that great though. If I'm not gonna use lemon juice though, I need something with some sourness and some acidity to cut through the, the richness and the amount of like just sheer fat involved in this mayonnaise. And so what I've chosen is, as I mentioned, sorrel. And sorrel is an herb that is extremely sour. It's got a lot of oxalic acid in it. It sort of hits you real hard at first and then it sort of fades very quickly. And this is also, again, if you think that thinking about your food beyond, you know, how much nutritional value in it is in it and uh, whether or not it tastes at least okay beyond that is a waste of time. You probably wouldn't have gotten this far in the show anyway, but you definitely want to turn it off now because part of the reason that I came up with sorrel in the first place to use in this dashi mayonnaise is, uh, is there's a very famous dish from, there was sort of one of the signposts on the way from really old French haute cuisine to the more modern, lighter uh, style that became called Nouvelle Cuisine. Uh, and it's from a restaurant that I think I've mentioned these guys before in the context of sous vide. The Trois Gros brothers came up with this, this dish that was salmon in a sorrel sauce. It was basically a sorrel puree with some cream. And, you know, I think there was a couple other things in it. I don't remember exactly what was in it. But this was considered at the time in the mid-60s or whenever it was that they came up with it, it mid to early 60s. Nobody had ever really thought about doing a dish like this before. It was a vegetable puree. It wasn't one of the mother sauces. It was something new and something different. And it was a huge sensation. So I'm gonna steal an idea from there and I'm gonna make a mayonnaise where the liquid component of the mayonnaise, the, the water phase is going to be a sorrel puree with a little bit of dashi to give it like a sour, but very sort of oceanic kind of quality because I want this to sort of look like, almost like sea foam around the, the, the salmon as it's spilling out of the seine. So I'm just pureeing this in my mortar and pestle with a little bit of salt. These are just a handful of sorrel leaves and it is intensely sort of sour smelling right now. It's almost like a sour sort of grassy smell. And it's nice that, that there is that kind of grassy component because again, we're getting nerdy with this dish and we're like having all these like concepts about it and the grassiness will kind of feel a little bit like there's still some land involved in this oceanic dish because there's still land involved with salmon. For if you haven't seen one of these, this is a backpack electrofisher. And it's got a 24 volt, I think, battery? I think so. 24 volt battery, but it's got, it steps up the voltage. It can go up to six or 800 volts. In streams like this, we're probably gonna be shocking with about three to 400 volts, I would guess. You test the water first, to basically measure the conductivity of the water so how fast it carries electricity and you adjust 
it automatically adjusts its output to match the conditions of the water. And that's because you don't want to put too much electricity in the water or you'll fry the little fish. And you, don't, <laughs> you want to put enough that it uh, affects them and makes them easy to catch. Fish, especially little salmon, their whole body is a very sensitive, has all kinds of sensitive little electroreceptors along the lateral lines. Mm -hmm. And so when you put this current, you've, we've got the rat tail, we call it, which is the cathode and the anode is a ring. And so we put those both in the water, push a button and the electricity flows between the cathode and the anode. And the fish's response, if you have it just right, is actually to swim toward the anode ring. And um, often as they get very close, they'll go belly up briefly, and then you can net them. They can't resist, they're like. Oh. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an involuntary reaction, makes their muscles twitch in a way that it's from turtle. It's not because they like it, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So it's like a really sophisticated version of dynamite fishing? No. Yeah, well, sort of, except if you do it right, it doesn't kill the fish. Right. This is super effective for sampling little fish, yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. what we're sampling is juvenile fish. When they get right. bigger, there's too much resistance because it has the electricity has to travel farther on the mm -hmm. along the lateral line, and then you can really damage them. So we only do this in these small headwater yeah. streams. They do use it other places for big fish too, but it, it can make their muscles contract so strongly yeah. that it can actually break the backbones oh. of the bigger fish. So. We don't want to do that. Fishing no. game yeah. doesn't want it used around adult salmon. But you'll see when we're gonna catch fish and we're gonna put them in a bucket and you'll you'll see they're gonna re, they'll be like oh okay I'm fine you know yeah, very very quickly they come out of it quick yeah it's very amazing. quickly I think yeah. we've done a lot of minnow trapping as well and seining for fish mm -hmm. and I don't think this has any more higher mortality rate it's probably lower than some of those lower. others in the minnow traps a fish will sometimes swim in there and get caught and yeah. die while it's in the minnow trap but I think this is if it's done right is yeah. lower of course, this is active fishing too, rather than setting a trap out and having to wait yeah. right. at least twenty four hours. To if come you want to assess, like, if you have a you know a stream reach, we're going to go to a stream, and you want to know, like, you want to get estimates of density. This is the way to do it. Because seining, you often can't do because you're there's stuff in the water, and you're pick, you know, it's just like you're you're getting all kinds of gunk in your net, and it hurts the fish sometimes because they get caught up in that gunk and they're being rolled around mm -hmm. in it, and then you go to open it up, and there's like whoa. This is really the best technique, and it's the techniques that's used all over the country. It's standard methodology by EPA. They're doing stream assessments that you would do a, what's called a three-pass electrofish. You'd have a 250-meter stretch, and you'd do this three times, and that would be oh, okay. your estimate of fish. So It does put out now... It puts out a lot of voltage, and I've been hit by it, and it doesn't feel good. So, especially on a wet day like this, you might be curious, but don't get too, too close. <laughs> and don't don't reach down, do not touch the water while it's on. They have gloves on. It'll be beeping when it's on. It'll go beep, beep, so you'll know yeah. it's on. We've been studying this particular area for a long time, and we learned that they travel very far. They travel upstream during torrential floods. Crazy. These fish move a lot. They move in the winter. Yeah. They move all the time. So that was really interesting just to un start building that understanding, which relates to conservation. How much does a sa juvenile salmon need? You know, how, how far are they going to be moving? What kinds of habitats are they moving in? This habitat we're going to go in is a coming out of a peatland, which you'll see, and it's a deep, slow-moving, like Steve said, tannin-rich stream. The bridge, if you take, when we go back, look over at the bridge, is very different. At that point, it's dropping, dropping more. It's a faster-running stream. There's more gravel. That's where spawning occurs, because there's gravel, right? And then, but then the babies hatch out, and they decide, they move up here. And we, so they, they like to come up here, especially in the winter. And they spend several years up here. So you'll see them. We'll probably, yeah. hopefully, catch different age classes. There's plenty of food in these streams. 
but of course they're temperature regulated, you know, they're bought because they're cold blooded. And they like to be in this stream because they don't have, there's a lot of food and they don't have to work very hard to stay where they are because there's not a lot of current. So they can come up here and just eat and be like, it's yeah. like leisure, <laughs> leisure activities. <laughs> the, the more we play and learn and you know, play, research salmon, they are, they're, they're just amazing. They're so fun, they're so interesting and they're so diverse. Like, you know, as many individuals as we are, those salmon have, you know, all individual ways of doing things too, which is, you know, makes them so resilient. Here we go. Oops, sorry about that. Right. That was right. unintentional. So we're just putting some bubblers in. Yeah. Fish like oxygen, right? Yeah. And yeah, do you want to, so here's something that would be, maybe you just need one. I'll give you, we'll get them that, and we'll just follow them along, and they'll, when they get this, they'll hand them up to us and we can put them in the bucket. Yeah, all that organic matter that, that's coming in that net, that's carbon. That's a source of carbon, which yeah. we found is really important in these streams. Yeah. It fuels the food webs, which is kind of unusual, but in our region, um, you know, we have at the base, we have algae and, and bacteria. And in our region, the, um, those bacterial communities have, are such that they can utilize carbon as, a, uh -huh. as an energy source. And so we, it really enhances productivity when you have alders and you have carbon. At peatlands, I mean, you get really enhanced productivity. We call them hot spots. We have a lot of phosphorus naturally because of uh -huh. uh, volcanic activity and you know, uh -huh. phosphorus in our landscape. Phosphorus is often limiting in freshwater, but it's not here. What we don't have is nitrogen okay. because we're a young landscape and nitrogen, we just don't, a lot of places are trying to get rid of excess nitrogen, mm -hmm. right? You know, in the lower 48. We don't have enough nitrogen, but alder fixes that nitrogen, right. takes it out of the atmosphere, fixes it in its roots and makes it available biologically. So mm -hmm. you, get the, you get the nitrogen coming from the alders. And then when you have peatland like this, mm -hmm. next, mixed in there, you, you get the carbon and, and that's where you get like a hot spot. So yes, yeah, it's, it's fueling the bacterial and the algal communities, which are fueling the invertebrates, which the salmon eat. And the other really interesting thing to note is this grass here. And see how it flops over in places and it gets all brown. And it We've done a lot of studies on this grass, which people call blue joint. It's everywhere in our landscapes. And it's really interesting story about how it connects to the stream. When there's nitrogen in the watershed, when they have those alders, it doesn't have to be right next to the stream. It just has to be in the watershed. The water is rich in nutrients and it conditions the grass and it makes it more palatable to the invertebrates that eat it compared to a, a stream that doesn't have alders in its watershed. This is more palatable. And the other really interesting thing we've learned is that when you have that nitrogen, the, these plants put their energy into their above ground parts, not their roots. And so what that means is that these banks are less stable, which you might think is like, oh, that's not good. But it's actually really good for these fish because it creates it little like hiding yeah, places. Yeah, right, exactly. so that's Did you already talk about the portfolio effect? With no, no, so I haven't. So one of the, <laughs> one of the, an interesting theory that's now more than a theory that came out with especially coho salmon, is that they have a variety of different life history strategies. strategies. So, it, for instance, in a stream like this on the Strisky, there are coho salmon that will rear up in even way above this in little tiny headwaters. There, there are coho that will actually rear in the estuary. They don't, mm -hmm. the, the young fish go into the estuary and will spend, we've had the same fish for over a year in the Anka River estuary, for instance, the same little fish, because we 
tag them, and we know that. Oh, so and and so they they, and some will rear in bigger channels like this, or even bigger channels. And so one of the ideas with cohos, especially, is they have all these different life history strategies in the same species. And so if one part of that system is badly impacted, the fish that are using a different strategy might do well for a while. And then under different conditions, maybe that habitat isn't doing as well. But if a different habitat is. That's the portfolio. Balancing yeah, yeah, exactly. You're hedging, spreading hedging out your bets. Yeah. 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 And that was one of the problems in the lower 48 in the Pacific Northwest when they didn't understand how important oh, the landscape was to salmon. Right, right, they didn't. Right. They didn't. They thought it was just you know salmon habitat ended at the stream banks. These headwaters like this, we've done some some studies that we're actually still in the midst of that we call downstream effects. So what we've learned is that we've been talking a lot about the landscape supporting these headwaters. Some of those nutrients are exported downstream. And what we've learned is that that downstream effect of those nutrients is what's driving productivity in the lower river, in all the rivers. So it's not, it's, it's not just the landscape connected here to this headwater, it's these headwaters connected to the whole river. So yeah. if we don't take care of this area, the lower river well, will you, die. I think of like lungs, like those tiny little you know, parts of your lungs mm-hmm. that, that if you ever had pneumonia, I've had pneumonia, they, they get stuffed up and you can't breathe, right? That's what I think about, like these are the, these are those tiny yeah, little branches that are mm-hmm, making the mm-hmm. system breathe. I feel like, um, and Jacob actually brought this up when we, we had a, a field trip a little while ago and um, I asked everybody on our staff to introduce themselves in the context of what they, their connection to salmon. And I don't know, Jacob, do you mind repeating what you said? Because it was really meaningful. Yeah. I think it's, it's something that's Do you important. remember? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> I do. Um, yeah, we were talking about our connections to salmon, and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest where, I mean, throughout school, like elementary school through high school into college, you're always hearing about how this was a salmon landscape, and there used to be all these historic salmon runs coming through, say, the Columbia or the Willamette or these big systems that drain huge portions of the West, and those don't exist anymore. Um mostly due to human interaction with the landscape and disconnecting all of these systems similar to what we have here. Um, and I guess that connection really was driven home to me coming up here and being able to work with Kui and Steve doing these projects where the systems are still intact and you can go into any of these small tributaries and still find juvenile salmon. You can see the runs coming up these big streams and see what it must have been like, what, a hundred years ago in the Pacific Northwest yeah. where those runs were still intact. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, no, it's a powerful thing to see. So we have, I, we always say, we have this opportunity that people don't have very many places. Mm-hmm. We have an opportunity not to screw things up, basically, you right, know, which, right, which yeah. is not very common anymore. I mean, people are spending <laughs> millions and billions of dollars to try and restore things that have been yep. broken. Shooting we, salmon through cannons to yeah. get them over I mean, we, we can actually <laughs> keep truck, systems connected if we, if we think about it. We, it's an amazing opportunity <laughs> that we're being handed if we can just be mindful. Right. And now I'm adding... A little mustard, not very much, maybe a teaspoon. And now I'm gonna add a little dashi. Not a lot at the beginning, just a couple tablespoons. I'm getting a very nice, very beautiful, very smooth green sauce. So this is gonna be kind of a green mayonnaise, which is what I'm after. I want that kind of sea green kind of flavor or appearance. Gonna add an egg yolk. And I've got now a very thick 
and a very, very beautiful emerald green puree. I'm gonna give it just a dash of Tabasco here. Drizzle just a little bit of oil in here, drops at a time. Go ahead and switch to the whisk. Remember mayonnaise actually thickens as you add oil to it. I'm almost there. I'm just about to where I want to be. It's almost all canola oil right now. I'm going to add the last bit as a little bit of sesame oil just to give it a little nutty flavor. Mmm. Oh, that's nice. It does need a little salt. It's very subtle, slightly sour. It's definitely got, you can only really describe it as, as a little bit of a sea taste. It's really good. But I'm very excited. That was actually, I was slightly nervous because I didn't know how the, the, the mayonnaise was sort of the wild card. I didn't know how it was going to come out. That is done. Basically everything complicated has been finished. Now all I need to do is cook my loin. So I'm looking at it and actually the, the, the next thing I got to think of is, okay, how do I want to actually serve this? Do I want little pieces of salmon or do I want just kind of a big piece? And I had sort of initially thought I would cook the piece of salmon first and then break it into smaller pieces. But I actually, I think it'll look nicer if I just cook it as one piece and serve it as one piece. You just cook the fish on one side and I'm only gonna cook it on the skin side. And the idea is that you wanna get the skin really crispy. The, the meat at the very top of the, the filet is just gonna be just, just medium rare, just barely where you want it to be. Typically, I would prefer to cook a piece of fish on just one side. And there's a few different ways you can get there. One is that saute it, cook it on one side and then shove it in the oven. The other, what we're gonna do here is we're gonna use a technique called basting. And then we're gonna cover it briefly at the end just to kind of steam the top of the fish. So I've got my pan hot and I salted the top of my, my salmon. So I've just got a pan that I'm heating over say medium high heat and I've got some oil in it and a generous amount of oil because I really want the skin to crisp up really nice. Periodically, while this fish is cooking, I'm going to do what's called basting it, which is I'm gonna scoop some of the oil. You tilt the pan so that all the oil runs into one side of the pan and you just spoon the fat on top of the fish. And what that does is that just helps the top side cook a little bit while the bottom side is also cooking. It moves things along and it's very useful for things like like a fish like this, uh, where I'm only cooking it on one side, it's really useful for scallops, where again, if you try to brown scallops on both sides, they usually overcook, you know? It's much better to pick a side, brown that side, and then get the other side just cooked through. So I've got a little lid, and I'm just gonna put it over the top of the pan really briefly. And all I'm trying to do is steam the top of the fish just a little bit. So I'm gonna end up with a steamed top and then a just medium rare center. And then I'll have crispy bottom skin. And if you're a person that loves eating crispy skin, you will get to eat your crispy skin. And if you're a person that doesn't want crispy skin, you can take it off your fish. Entirely up to you. We are there. I'm just gonna pull this fish off and I'm gonna let it rest for just a couple of minutes. And now we can get to plating our lovely Bird's nest, salmon in a seine. I'm gonna use a blue plate because I have a blue plate and I like blue plates for this kind of thing. And you know, it's all oceanic too. I know why fine dining restaurants use white plates. You know, it makes all the colors stand out and it means that any, any dish that you wanna make will work on your plate, but kind of boring, you know? So I'm gonna start with my ocean, which is gonna be a little bit 
of this mayonnaise. I'm just gonna make a little puddle and I wanna sort of drizzle some of the puddle out. Now I gotta put my seine in there. And the nice thing about this little bit of a puddle is that it provides a bit of an anchor for my seine to sit in. It won't roll around the plate. The other major component of my dish is my piece of salmon. And I'm gonna put it gently in the seine, skin side up. So I got this nice crispy salmon skin sitting inside the seine, inside the bird's nest potatoes. You can see just a little strip of the salmon, of the, the red salmon beside it. And now I'm just gonna kind of drizzle a little, drizzle, drizzle, drizzle some of the mayonnaise around it. I'm not gonna put it on top of it in this case. I want it to just sort of feel like the salmon has kind of, it's splashing around. The next part of our garnish is three components. And there are three sort of related components. One, the first is pretty simple and it goes really nicely with salmon. And that is a cucumber, finely diced. And I'm just gonna sprinkle that around. Cucumber and salmon are very delicious together. Um, and cucumber has, uh, particularly Alaska seafood, the biggest thing I can think of that's frequently described this way, or that I frequently describe this way anyway, is oysters, have definitely a very cucumbery flavor. So since cucumbers are also in season right now, and since I have a ton of them in my greenhouse, I thought that some cucumbers would be very appropriate. So we just sprinkle those around and they'll give a nice little flavor. The next, after I strained the kombu and the bonito flakes from my dashi, what you can do with them is you can turn them into a seasoning. Chop them up, dry them out a little bit. This is basically the beginning point of furakake, which is a rice seasoning that can be a bunch of different things, but frequently have sesame seeds and other stuff in it. In this case, it doesn't. It's just the bonito flakes and the kombu. And I'm just going to lightly sort of sprinkle them around a little bit, again, to give it kind of a nice oceanic flavor. And it's another, we're getting multiple sort of shades of green in this dish, which is kind of evocative of both the green of seawater and the green of land. So again, we're losing two or three more people turning off their radio going, it's just dinner. And now the final touch is a little bit of salmon roe caviar. And we will just pile this directly on the fish, on the skin, in a big pile. And we can be generous with it because salmon caviar is both very delicious and like the salmon run itself, very short-lived. So if you have it, use it. Finally, for our last little touch, we will drizzle just a little bit of fleur de sel around the plate. And it's all very sort of active looking, and it looks like this net has just splashed aboard, and there's a salmon spilling out of it and water everywhere. Salmon is saying, is it fussy? Yes. Would you be stoked to eat it? Also, yes, as I am right now. Very excited because I get to have this for my lunch. There are some perks for this show. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. The fishing segment was recorded on the FE Captain Cook, owned and operated by Malcolm Mill. His deckhands are... My name's uh, Josh Evans. Aurelio Baldeski. Rio Shemit Pitcher. The segment at Starisky Creek was recorded in September 2019 during Fish Need Land 2. 
presented by the Kachemak Bay National Estuary and Research Reserve and the Kachemak Heritage Land Trust, with Research Reserve staffers Cooey Walker, Steve Baird, and Jacob Argueta. The history of the Peretich Power Block is drawn from Fisheries of the North Pacific by Robert J. Browning. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10 Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotor Ebain. This is the second episode of the summer 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Thank you. 